The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. So, uh, this summer we have uh, made a commitment to uh, walk through the Apostles' Creed together. Last week we started at the very beginning with I Believe. Today it is I Believe in God the Father. If you haven't started to already, open up with me to the book of Acts in the New Testament. Acts 17, it's on page 926 of a Bible in the pew rack if you need to grab one there. Acts 17 is where we're looking this morning as we consider that we believe in God the Father. Now, we have already sung this reality in the Gloria Patri, glory to the Father, that's what that means. We have confessed our faith using the words of the Creed, confessing actually twice, believing in God the Father Almighty, and saying that we believe that the Son has ascended to the Father's right hand. So, we believe in the Christian church in God the Father Almighty. You should uh, make note of the fact, as you look back at the Apostles' Creed, that the Creed doesn't just say, I believe in God. As if to say, generally speaking, any God, but rather it clearly articulates which God, which God we believe in, describing the identity and character of the God we believe in, the Trinity, the triune God, the God of triunity. The Christian faith, hear me very clearly, the Christian faith is not based on some abstract concept or uncertainty about who God is. The Christian faith asserts the reality of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Now, I'll just tell you briefly one, uh, one really uh, thing that happened when I was in college that really left a mark on me. Uh, I don't know if you've ever gone to, you know, whether it's like a civic event or uh, some sort of situation in which there's a chaplain and they, they begin like a civic event in prayer or a community gathering in prayer. Well, uh, at my college, it was uh, the, the holiday festival just during winter finals and they got together for you know, a very nondescript uh, holiday meal. And they asked me to do the prayer for the college gathering, and I received very strict instructions from the dean of students that it was my responsibility, that it was my duty to pray in a nondescript way so as not to offend anyone. The dean of students stopped short of writing the prayer for me, but I remember sitting in her office and saying, ma'am, I respect what you're asking me to do, but I can't do it. And so standing up to lead the prayer, she still let me do it, praying to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because this is the God that we believe in, not some indescript, abstract deity that is subjectively defined by whoever they want it to be, but the God who is, who has revealed himself to us in the scriptures. Now, I say that to you because the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17 confronts something of the exact same reality. The Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17 is in the city of Athens. He's going to go to the Areopagus, which is, if you like, the center of debate and thought in the ancient world. And the Apostle Paul is going to go to the center of ancient thought and say, 
Have you thought about the one true God? The way he does it is so very important that we pay special attention to. So let's pray and ask God's blessing upon the scriptures as we hear it together this morning. Heavenly Father, we bow now, thankful that, that you've called us to worship you, thankful that you, you put breath in our lungs to sing your praises and to pray and to confess. Lord, we thank you that we have received the assurance of your grace in the gospel, and, and now we pray that you would speak to us here in the scriptures, that you would speak to us by your living word so as to confront our notions that may be wrong, to correct us and to teach us, Lord, to confirm the faith that we have and to grow us in knowledge and in love. So, Lord, come now by the power of your spirit to bless your word to us as we hear it and believe it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And now hear the word of God from Acts 17 at verse 16 under the heading Paul in Athens. This is the word of God. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Iopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought to think that the divine be we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again on, about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Timaeus, and the others with them. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. So may he write eternal truth on our hearts 
today. Do keep your Bible open there in Acts 17 as we have uh, one of the most uh, ancient and relevant ways of talking about God that we all need to know about. Uh, as we dive into this uh, notion of God as Father, uh, the God that we believe in is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just read to you very, very quickly what, uh, what J.I. Packer has to say about this. J.I. Packer uh, was uh, renowned in the last century uh, for, for his faithfulness and his articulate writing. He has something to say about God as Father. He says this, and listen closely to see if you understand what he's saying. He says, you sum up the whole of the New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. Do you think about God as father? I'll recognize the extraordinary providence that this is the subject on Father's Day that wasn't planned. Nevertheless, it is a wonderful thing to think of, and J.I. Packer asked the question, do you think about God as your father? Do you consider yourself a child of God? Because he says that is the mark of someone who understands New Testament faith, New Testament Christianity. Well, the Apostle Paul wants to talk about that reality of God as a father in Acts chapter 17, but it is, as I said, very relevant for us because we do not confess an abstract deity. We confess the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there is in our world today, just like there was in Paul's time in Athens, a proliferation, a, a, a huge number of options for you if you want to believe in God. You can make it an abstract deity. You can define it however you want it. But you, if you are subjectively defining God, you are not talking about the God of the Scriptures. Well, Paul confronted this society that was as contrary to, opposite to, different from the Judeo-Christian worldview as it could possibly be, just like our society still is today, just like now it was back then, a pluralistic society of many gods, a buffet of deity that let you pick and choose what you want, put back what you weren't interested in, and keep whatever satisfied you. It was also a time of extraordinary pluralistic wealth of worldviews. The, the uh, book of Acts even here mentions some of the particular philosophies, the Epicureans, the Stoic philosophers in verse 18. Athens is the hub of intelligence and philosophy for the ancient world. The New Testament, written in historical context, understands that reality, and that's exactly where Paul is going. He's going to address this reality. Everybody knows that God exists. Everybody knows that God exists. Even the atheist. They're merely denying what they know exists and is true. Paul says such in the book of Romans that everyone believes that God exists. They just attempt to repress the knowledge of that. What happens is because we know that God exists, because we know that we are the product of a divine maker, because we look at the creation and necessarily conclude that there is a creator, we have to then explain who is this God? 
Who is this God that has made me? Who is this God that has instituted this world and set within it natural laws of order? Who is this God? Well, people run all different directions with it. Some people say, you might hear them using this language all the time. People say, you know, when I think about God, I like to think about God as such and such and such. And it's usually the case that when someone attempts to run off on their own definition for who God is, that they are creating another kind of false God rather than the God that's revealed in the scriptures. That's why we're thankful that we don't have to guess who God is. You don't have to wonder or be uncertain because he has revealed himself not only in creation, but in especially in the scriptures. I'll just say this before we get into the details of Acts 17. Look, if God revealed himself in mud puddles and tea leaves, that's what we would look to. But he hasn't. God has revealed himself in nature, generally, and in the Bible, specifically. So that's where we look for who God is. Notice how Paul interacts here. Paul gives a master class on Christian apologetics, the defense of the faith, the interaction with other worldviews. He comes to them in verse 22, you know, graciously. Verse 22, I see, uh, I perceive in every way that you're very religious. And we love this vocabulary today, right? People say, well, I'm spiritual but not religious. And Paul is interacting that same type of mentality. I see that you care very much about spiritual things, is what he's essentially saying. He's commending them for not denying religious practice, Rather, he's noting his interest in spiritual things. He says in verse 23, that I have found even an altar to an unknown God. You see that there in verse 23? I found also an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. That's because in the Athenian culture and at the Areopagus, there would have been such a, a diversity of deity that the Athenians didn't want to somehow, by accident, miss one. They would have given names of this altar and that altar to this God and to that God. And just in case they missed one, they built this one. And they didn't name it just in case that unknown deity to them was actually real and so that they wouldn't offend this potentially unknown God. Paul perceives this, this, this deeper ignorance in that they have interest in spiritual things, but they lack knowledge to such a degree that they would build this unknown God altar. So he says to them in verse 23, what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. In other words, I'm going to tell you what you don't seem to understand. And you even yourself say, I don't understand this. What Paul does here is that he, he launches in to an explanation of the fact that God has made the world and everyone in it. God has made the world and everyone in it. Notice how he says it. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Paul is establishing that this God, the God who has made everything, is not a God that you build tiny little altars to and then put in your pocket and control. He is the God who made you. He is the God who is transcendent over you and your life, who orders your life and everything about it. He says that he gives life to all men and breath to everything. And what this is, is a reversal of these common notions of pagan perspectives 
where uh, there is a storm god who makes the storms and a war god who wages the wars and a fertility god who brings about the crop. No, Paul is saying there is one God who rules over everything. And you, you are related to this God, aren't you? Verse 28, he's quoting a Greek poet here when he says, For in him we move, live and move and have our being. This God who has made the world is related to you in that your life is a product of his existence. What Paul is articulating here is a, a, a universal fatherhood of God as creator. I want you to see that. Paul is saying to all the Athenians, God is your father in the sense that he has made you. He has made the world. He has made everything in the world. And as the maker of the world, he rules over the world. We are the offspring of this God. We are dependent upon this God for our existence at every moment. He is the author and sustainer of all things. Paul is establishing this reality generally. Jesus says the same thing, doesn't he, when Jesus says that God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Just because you say you don't believe in God doesn't mean God ceases to exist and be the one that made you. Just because one person obeys and one person disobeys doesn't mean that God withholds the rain from one or the other. No, he gives the rain to the just and the unjust. So what Paul is doing here is he is establishing this reality. You have been created by God, that you live in this world made by him, and are therefore subject to him. Notice how he says this. Verse 29, because we're God's offspring, being then God's offspring. He's giving us the implications. He says, because that's true, because this God has made you, because this God rules over the world, there is an obligation that we have to seek him. Mentions that in verse 27, that we should seek God and perhaps feel our way toward him and find him. And he's not far from us. He is saying that this general recognition of God as creator, the, the, the fact that God is the father of all mankind, must be recognized by everyone. But not just that. Paul makes a transition when he says that this one God has appointed a man by which he's going to judge the world. And there he's referencing the Lord Jesus. He doesn't ever use the name, interestingly, because that would have been a real stumbling block for these Greeks. He just says the God who has made everything has appointed a man through which he will judge the world. What he's saying is that this general recognition of God as creator brings with it an obligation to recognize this God and worship him. The obligation to seek, to worship, and obey. Paul is saying the general recognition of God as creator requires also faith in God as redeemer. That God is the father of all mankind with respect to his act of creation He's saying, look, you worship this God, but you don't know him. You don't know what you're worshiping. So I'm going to explain this to you. The time of ignorance has passed. Now he commands all to repent. Notice how they respond to him. Verse 32. Some people are like, man, this guy. He's crazy. They mock him. As is often the case still, right? Some people say, you know, that's interesting. Verse 32, tell us, tell us more about that. We'll hear you some more. Because there's more to say. 
What Paul is doing, as it relates to God as Father, is that usually the way speak of, people speak about God as Father is one of two ways. They speak about God as the Father of all mankind, which is how Paul is introducing the concept, isn't he? God is the Father of all mankind insofar as he cre has created all people and all this world. He is the Father of all mankind. But Paul is also distinguishing God is also uniquely the father of those who trust in the one that's been raised from the dead. There's a sense in which we can speak about God as father universally of overall creation. But the gospel is that through Jesus Christ, we become the children of God in a special way. That there is a general way to speak about the fatherhood of God, and then through Christ by faith, there is a particular way to speak about the fatherhood of God. So says Jesus in John 8, 39 through 44. He said, if God were your father, you would love me. But because you don't love and receive me, you don't call God father in this special sense. Jesus also says in John 5, 23, that he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So there is the unique way the Christian believer speaks about the fatherhood of God then, isn't there? God as Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, whom we receive and trust and believe in so that we become the children of God. You know what's interesting about this is that it was especially in America in the 18th century when this concept was really confused. So I went to school in New England, uh, and in the Boston area, most of the incredible grand church structures that were formerly very strong Protestant churches are all Unitarian churches today. Unitarianism as a movement in the 18th century was built upon this assertion, the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of all mankind. Unitarianism gets to the point that there is no distinction there is no secondary special designation that through faith in Christ we have a special relationship with God. It's just that God is the Father of all. We're all united in a Unitarian gospel. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Unitarianism has taken root, very much so, in America. So the question stands then, what does the Christian church believe about this? What does the Christian church believe about God as a father, with respect to the universality of God's fatherhood over all creation and the specific fatherhood of God for those who trust in Christ. Well, you've already said it. We've said it together. We believe in God the Father Almighty. And what do we mean when we say that? What kind of father are we talking about? We are not saying when we say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, the the, the unknown deity who is just creator. No, we are speaking of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, not God is not therefore some force or principle or higher power. When we speak of God as Father, we mean in this special sense two things. And we'll spend the rest of our time thinking about this just to give you an idea where all this is headed. When we say we believe in God the Father Almighty, we are speaking about a God who is Personal and powerful. Personal and powerful. A personal God in the sense that, again, he's not some abstract deity. He is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, 
God is described in Deuteronomy 32 as the father of Israel. In Hosea 11, the prophet Hosea spoke of God as a father carrying his child Israel. And David describes God as a father to the fatherless. And the most complete revelation of God as father comes when the father sends his son and the son says, I have come from my father and he will become your father as well if you receive me in faith and in trust. Jesus says in John 10, 30, that I and the father are one. He says in John 6, 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who has sent me. We know that it is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ that Jesus speaks of because the Father has sent the Son to accomplish the salvation for sinners, and it is the Son's great purpose to reveal the Father to us. So if you think about what Jesus is doing as he comes to earth, one of the fundamental things he is doing is that he has come so that you could know who this God is, so that you could call him Father as well. The true citizens of the kingdom of Christ, are embraced in this loving relationship of God as Father as he shares in the love that he has for his Son. He shares it with those who become his sons and daughters by the grace of adoption. And so what that means is that if you're a Christian believer, you share in the infinite, eternal, unchanging love that God the Father has for his Son as you become united to his Son through faith and share in that infinite love and Jesus' father becomes your father. So what do you think about fathers? What do you think about fatherhood? You know, some people really stumble with this notion of God as Trinity and first person of the Trinity, God the Father, because they associate fatherhood with a potential poor example that they've had in their life. And when, when, when they think associative thoughts of fathers they struggle because perhaps their earthly father was loveless toward them, impatient, harsh, abusive, perhaps even. And that's a sorrowful thing, and we should recognize it, and it's truly a tragedy that some children grow up without invested and loving, caring, attentive, present fathers. But we should not take our earthly concepts and assume that God the Father is like that, we should rather say, if you're a person that has negative associations with fathers, God the Father is everything and more your earthly father wasn't. Or, if you're a person who has wonderful associations with your earthly father, take that memory and warmth and love and multiply it by infinity to begin to wrap your mind around the fatherhood of God Almighty. We don't project our earthly experiences onto God and say, God is defined by me and my subjective experiences. We intend to say, this is who God says he is, a loving, caring, patient, attentive, nurturing, present father. This is who God is as a father. The heavenly father meets all of these longings for us. And if we think about God as a personal father, what should we say about the father? as his personal affection towards you in Christ? The Father loves you. And I think we just need to hear that and believe it and be restored in our souls by that truth. In Jesus Christ, God the Father loves you. How does he love you? 
He loves you in a way that will never change. He loves you in a way that is not subject to your failure. You ever had somebody tell you that? I love you no matter what. No matter what you do, no matter what you say, I love you. It's a love, it's an emanation of love from the Father's heart to his children that will go to all lengths and all heights at great cost to himself to say that he loves us. The originating source of all love in the world. Consider this. If you know anything about the emotion of love, no matter whom it is projected toward, the emanation of all love comes from God's divine person as Father. Love originates from God. That's what the Bible means when it says that God is love. We love because God first loved us. The Son has come into the world to display the Father's love for his wayward children. The way you should think about Jesus, the way you should think about the cross, is not to think that Jesus is on the cross to make the Father love me. No. Jesus is on the cross because the Father loves you. Because he has sent his Son to claim you for his kingdom. You do not earn your Father's love. You simply receive it. His heart is full of love towards you in Christ. And our love for God the Father is a result of his first loving us. That's what Paul also says. We love because he first loved us. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us. One Christian writer says it this way, when the believer sees God as love, sees him to be infinitely lovely and loving, and finds rest and peace for their soul in that love, then the believer has known communion with the Father in love. Communion with the Father in love. Let me give you an analogy that's imperfect. As all earthly analogies will be. But when Paul was younger and getting up twice a night, every night, go get him and bring him to mom. And there is that the particular moment when a child nestles himself into your shoulder, right? In a way that he doesn't do to a stranger. Why? Because there is that bond of communion, of love, that is of unspeakable beauty, isn't it? Take any aspect of that earthly emotion and multiply it by an infinite and eternal amount to understand the beginnings of God's love for you in Christ. That sense of nestled in, trusting, loving fellowship and communion that looks and says, I'm safe with you, I trust you, I receive you as mine, resting in this care and protection. The Heavenly Father, the God that we believe in, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is a personal God who loves us. So he is a personal God, but we also confess God the Father Almighty. What do we believe about that? That he is powerful. The God that Paul articulates is a God who has declared that there's going to come a day when he will render accounts settled and declare a judgment. That he is authoritative. 
that He is sovereign, that He is a God who will pronounce judgment. Just as God is personal, He is also powerful. God was known to the Israelites as the Almighty One, the El Shaddai. So when in the Apostles' Creed we believe in God the Father Almighty, we say that we believe not simply that God is mighty, but that He is Almighty, distinguishing Him from any other form of deity in the ancient East or in the ancient world. His power extends over all creation, more than some storm god or fertility god or war god. He is almighty. Listen to the way Babylonian King Nebuchadnezzar said it in Daniel 4, that this God does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? When we say that we believe in God the Father who is almighty, we are saying that that represents the summation of all of God's glorious attributes, all of his knowledge, all of his power, all of his presence, all of his infinite being, self-existent, unchanging, infinite, eternal glory is contained in that, this God. And because we believe in this God who is almighty, that's why we worship the way we do with reverence and awe, not trifling, not making quick comments about God without reverence, but rather teaching and preaching and singing and praying and worshiping together in a way that reveres and honors this almighty God. So, what do you mean when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty? Do you mean that you believe in the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has revealed himself to you in the gospel that you might become his true child through faith, not just generally in creation, but specifically in the bond of love through the gospel. If that is the covenant affirmation of your heart, what you are saying is, you are my God and I am your child. That's what we say, don't we? He is our God. We are his people. We believe in this God. When we say it, We are saying, I believe in God the Father Almighty. Christian believer, mean it when you say it. And let your heart be filled with love. Because God the Father's heart is full of love for you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that by your word you reveal to us not only that you have made us, but that you have redeemed us through your Son. You reveal yourself to us as personal and powerful, that we might know you by faith. Well, Lord, as we worship you, may it delight your heart, and may it stir ours with increasing affection and our minds with increasing knowledge to give you the obedience that you call upon all to repent and believe upon Jesus as he is offered in the gospel. We thank you for that, and we pray, Lord, receive the honor of our worship now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.